0: Welcome back to another episode of the Best Minutes Podcast. Each week, Movies by Minutes hosts examine the 1946 William Wyler-directed film, The Best Years of Our Lives, one minute of screen time per episode. I'm Josh Horowitz from Five Minutes of Trouble and Five Minutes of Bonsai, and my co-host on this ride once again is the great Brett Stillo. Welcome back, Brett.
1: So welcome me back, eh?
0: Oh, You're yeah. asking him how
1: I'm doing, eh? Oh, wait, wait, wait a wait, podcast, eh? But... No, no, no.
0: Get get, get, that, get that fist away. Oh, oh no, no. Ugh.
2: Get your podcast off of him.
1: <laughs> it was Fred Derry. He was the podcaster. It was I saw him do it. So and that's our episode. Thank you very
3: much. Thank
2: you. <laughs> it's been great having
0: how... <laughs> I'll go
3: get the spirits.
0: <laughs> well, this is that uh, this is that uh, uh, episode we're talking about, minute 137 of the film. Uh, but we have two great guests here to join us and talk about this smashing minute, and that would be Sid Bridge and James Rodatus from the Reels and Wheels podcast. Uh, welcome back! Thanks for coming on again. Thanks,
2: Thanks for having us. Having
3: us. Yeah. yeah, too cool. It's you know we've we've been we've been like podcasting at a distance with each other for like a few years now. I think since we since you guys were doing the Big Trouble podcast.
0: Yeah, no, it's it's been one podcast after another, and we're we're always glad to collaborate with you on these these films.
2: Yeah, and this is this is not a film I had heard of before, so thank you guys for uh, pointing it out to us for putting it on our radar. It was it was great to watch, and it was very different, I would say ahead of its time. Yeah,
0: Jim O'Kane was the one who first uh, you know came up with this concept of going over. Uh, the best years of our lives. I too hadn't seen this film before and I'm very glad that I was opened up to it. It's, uh, it's quite a film. I think it's poignant for our times right now. And uh, yeah, glad you could see it too.
3: Yeah, um, it was, uh, yeah. It's it an interesting movie that I didn't think is the kind of thing that would actually ever get made in, uh, in, a, in that era. So uh, it's, just, it's just bizarre to see something that, uh, that's that honest
1: right right yeah and and has a uniquely you know positive message i think it's not sugar-coated i think it's weiler saying uh, it's gonna be all right we're gonna get through this we're gonna get back to normal um it's a it's a friendly hug of a movie
2: Mm.
1: a terrible description but anyway there's no friendly hugging in this scene no this this is a friendly hug
0: wrapped in candy glass
3: Yes. Yeah, I'm a, little, I'm a little curious, by the way. Did, were you just like randomly picking out scenes to find guys to talk to? Or are you like, this one's good for Sid and James. Like somebody gets punched through a case made out of candy glass. They're going to love this.
0: Well, yes. You guys are punchy characters. We thought yeah. that it would be good to have you on for the show for this in lieu, Yeah,
1: in lieu of the fact that there are no cars that you can see in this minute, I thought a, a good old-fashioned Hollywood punch... Uh, with a good old Hollywood punch sound effect, you know that like, what is that? A baseball bat hitting a side of beef? But you know we've heard it ten thousand times. Yeah, yeah I mean, you were the guys for this. You were the guys.
2: It, it's almost like you could have sort of like the nineteen sixties Batman, like a you know, whack or something. Like, yeah, it yeah. was. <laughs> it it was reminded me of like great. it
3: reminded me of the sound it makes when you punch a guy while you're playing Double Dragon. Yeah. Whack, whack. Yeah. Again. <laughs> uh, I'm, I'm sure that you know that that's probably
1: like an 80 year old sound effect and it probably was used in double dragon and still gets used today because it is such a like it, it's practically a trope all that's it's, missing it's is the wilhelm, wilhelm scream one. that's yeah, what we need here <laughs> the wilhelm scream but uh josh yes tell us a little, summarize this minute how do yes. we start what are we doing here how do we get the hell
0: out of here this is minute 137 of the film this starts with homer getting up from his hot fudge Sunday, and it ends with a tattletale <laughs> that's a a summary if you ever had one and there's some interesting stuff that happens uh this is the continuation of uh our conversation with mr Mollett, our friendly isolationist uh but but homer doesn't like what he's saying and so he's getting up and and he's showing him what he thinks yeah the true tragedy of this minute Is that hot fudge Sunday? We talked about this a little bit in 136. The saddest Sunday.
1: Yeah, that's you know, with what we see here, that Sunday's not gonna get eaten. Mm. It's it's gonna be turned away. It's that's that Sunday, it's as good as dead.
2: And even though this film's in black and white, that thing looks delicious. Oh (laughs) my god. Like
3: you guys are making me really hungry right now. Yeah, Uh.
2: I need the only problem with me making one of those at home is that I know I will not be able to make one that is that good.
0: Mm.
2: No, the,
3: the, the 1940s uh, soda jerk hot fudge sundae is something that just doesn't exist anymore, guys.
2: You're, you're right about that. Sid, <laughs> um, so you, you've been to Charlottesville, right? Virginia? Yes. That is the last time I saw one of those traditional drug stores. It has like the cafe and stuff inside. And they have soda jerks and hot fudge sundaes. Like you can, it is like walking back in time to this place that has, in addition to prescription drugs, hot fudge sundaes and gifts. And um, I don't know if they have uh, aromatic smelling salts or whatever they (laughs) they have at the end, but it's pretty good.
3: I miss the days when that was your, that was your emergency yell. You know, the yeah. guys on the ground are like, go get the druggist. <laughs> <Go> get <laughs> nice. the druggist. I'd like to think that this, uh,
1: this counter in Charlottesville has a 90-year-old soda jerk who's been there since before World War II. And maybe it's even Sticky Merkel. I don't know.
3: I have a family tradition of soda jerk, actually. My grandfather, my namesake, was a soda jerk.
0: Yeah, in actually, Richmond. my my grandfather also, uh, he ran a soda fountain back in uh, Maspeth, New York. So ah.
2: for, for folks who don't know, what is a soda jerk exactly? What did they do? Why was that a thing? Why was it called that?
0: Mm. Well, they operate a soda fountain where they, I guess, they dispense the carbonated soda to make Coca-Cola back then. Uh, I, I guess the jerk has to do with jerking down the handle. And then I, perhaps the, the negative connotations must have come later, I would think.
3: Yeah, it referred to, yeah, I, I'm looking it up right now, and it actually was the jerking action that the server would use to swing the soda fountain handle back. So mm-hmm. that's, and it usually referred so, to the person working the machine.
0: So when did becoming a, a jerk be a bad thing then? That's the question. Hmm. I've never looked that word
1: up. I don't, you know, perhaps it's uh I'll I'll bet you it goes back to like the crusades.
3: You know what? Honestly, I would wager it evolved from the soda jerk uh, <laughs> because because <laughs> it, it was um it looks like it was a, just a position for somebody in their teens or something that wasn't very hard to do. Like you're
0: just a jerk, you know, you're well, not They the... they need to add that episode to that Nicolas Cage thing they have on Netflix about the the history of curse words.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That would be a good one.
0: That mm-hmm. would
1: be a good one. But you know, one thing I love about this minute is we get some good old-fashioned, like chewing on eight sticks of bubblegum 1940s dialogue. Mm. When when oh, yeah. Homer confronts Mollet, it's not it's not just the accusations, it's it's that he throws in an A, as I was doing, you know? <laughs> So you think we're a bunch of suckers, eh? A. <laughs>
0: That's the best. Yes. It, the a makes it better. It's like, mm-hmm. yeah, we, well, you we, know, we don't get enough of that anymore unless you live in Canada.
3: And <laughs> I get, you know, the, there's, there's gotta be some level of genuineness going on there. Um, uh, because I'm sure you've discussed this in other minutes, but, um, Harold Russell wasn't really an actor. Uh, so, uh, right. I think he was just Harold Russelling him.
1: Yeah. Mm. This, is, this is an angry Harold and that's what you get. But, uh, just, it's, it's just those, uh, I mean, this minute is peppered with, you know, like, why you? Why yada? And it's, you know, it's, this could also be from a Three Stooges movie, but it's not.
0: Well, I think the thing that sort of adds the extra emotion is the fact that he's got the hooks and he's, yeah. he's touching him mm-hmm. with those hooks. I mean, that, that kind of, you know, drives home the fact of, of what he sacrificed. And if anything it's, makes anybody feel uncomfortable, it's those.
3: His hook taunt game. Is uh is pretty high level too because I believe I mean it's hard to watch it in the black and white on that screen everything caught everything but he like didn't just hassle him with the hooks I think he hooked one of his buttons and flung it off yeah there's the
1: oh no it was uh it wasn't
2: a button it was an American flag pen from the right yes
1: yeah you you don't deserve to wear that pin (laughs) yeah this
2: is
0: uh so yeah it's it's a total uh, dynamite moment. And you know, uh, you know, and and he's talking about how you know, 400 of his shipmates went down with the ship. You know, were they suckers? I I think he must be talking about maybe the uh, the Oklahoma that went down during Pearl Harbor. That was one where you know over 400 crew died when uh, when it was hit during the during the Japanese attack.
1: No, it would have been it would have been later. You know what? Uh, you think it's later? Er- yeah, it early on, you know, way back when they're all getting drunk at Butch's. Uh, you know, Al jokes that he and Homer were in the same battle in the Philippines. Oh, okay. Except they didn't know. So it was, it's,
0: yeah, that's- I
3: wanted one. to hear that it was the Indianapolis because that would make him and Quint buddies.
0: Oh, with oh, the yeah. sharks. Oh. Wow. Dark, dark.
1: <laughs> <laughs> but but interesting, yeah. Um, I think he mentions uh, these. he was a machinist in the hangar of a flat top. Hmm. And, you know, it actually- I'm trying to remember if, if the Navy lost any carriers that late in the war. Maybe it was the Franklin or the Princeton, mm.
2: if we want to look it up. but I, I forget. I know I have a great uncle who actually got, he was a dive bomber pilot, and oh. I think was awarded the Navy Cross, or maybe it was Distinguished Flying Cross, but he was, got a, a significant award for his uh, Navy. So it was Navy Cross, that was it. And he had a carrier shot out from under him. I believe it was either the Wasp or the Lexington. Oh. And had to ditch at sea and like sit around the ocean by himself for uh, a couple of days. Or maybe with, I don't even remember if if he had an extra crewman with him or not. But basically had to, was marooned at sea until he got picked up by, uh, by a rescue ship. And the other thing to think about, you know, in World War II, uh, these ships didn't have helicopters so mm. you had to wait for a ship to like make it to you pretty much um before you got rescued mm. yeah,
3: that's a,
1: that's but, a really a good point that yeah you're you know bobbing in the ocean and you know i've heard stories about you know it's, it's not just the salt water if if your ship sank there might be oil or gasoline in uh-huh. mm-hmm. the water i mean that's that's it's quite possible. That's how Homer lost his hands was, you know, in a, in the fire of the, you know, in the water Ooh. or something like that. So yeah, we're, we're getting, we're getting good. So yeah, we totally are on Homer's side
2: now, right now. Right. We're like, mm-hmm. yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Tear off hey, more than the, the pin. The way that we look at it today, you'd think, well, how could, um, how could this guy have been fired from his job at the drugstore? The The headline in the newspaper should have read, local hero punches Nazi in the face. Uh, But the the good thing that this movie points out, and it's something we don't talk about a lot today, is that there were a lot of Nazi sympathizers in America. There were a lot of people who thought that we should not intervene in World War II, that that was a European problem. What the Nazis were doing was was okay, you know? Especially Um, early in the war. Yeah, you're right. Yeah,
3: I mean, like, look, frankly, uh, Roosevelt wasn't exactly all that hot to get into it. Uh, <laughs> he had plenty of intel, plenty of, I mean, uh, uh, like, you know, lots of, uh, this one gets a little personal, but he had, he had plenty of intel of what the Nazis were doing, and uh, and he was brought intel that if he had just dropped a couple bombs on a couple of railroads would have saved thousands of lives. You know, eh. <laughs> eh. Yeah, I've so, heard that. Yeah.
0: Hmm.
3: Yeah, so here we are, you know, like, the, and, and yeah, you know, I think people forget that there was a, um, there was a, a pretty big groundswell of, no, let's not get involved. He's not that, What well, he can't be doing many, all this bad stuff over there. And, uh, yeah, it's worth punching him. There's not enough, or there weren't enough fists. Yeah. Yeah.
1: So, and actually, you know, it's funny, because really Fred doesn't need to help Homer, because you know, Homer is going <laughs> at Mollet's face with a hook. Yeah. I, 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 think, I think Right Mallet, and a yeah. left
0: hook, yeah. Yeah.
1: Mollet is seconds away from having his nose clipped off.
0: Yeah, I mean, imagine if he had tried to, you know, punch him with the hooks. I mean, God, he hits a soft pot part in the neck or something. Yeah, yeah,
3: yeah. He he
1: becomes a Marvel
0: villain.
3: Well, well, yeah, you know, give me the full on with the character. Would he have punched them if he had, had a, if he had hands, if he had hands? Would he have, would he have actually made the punch? Well, he, he there said was...
0: that, yeah. He says, if, oh, if no,
3: I only had my hands, he says at one point. That's, that's why I'm asking. He, 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 the excuse pops up immediately. If I only had my hands, I'd punch you. Kick hmm.
0: him. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, do oh. a little MMA here. He doesn't have to do straight boxing. Oh, it's <laughs> funny,
1: though, that you get, it's 1946. That's, that's not a manly way to fight. Hmm. You know, ah, that's, no, I I,
0: know,
1: there's no, I was watching a, a few months ago, I was watching an old Republic serial where it's uh, fight scenes and then 30 seconds of dialogue and more fight scenes. And, you know, there's the hero with the stunt man, you know, classic Hollywood haymakers and, and his girlfriend is helping out by, by kicking bad guys. Cause you know, ladies don't punch, they kick. So Mm. Uh, and you don't see, you know, you don't see any of these guys throwing a kick either. So yeah, we're, we're, uh, unfortunately we're a few years away from Bruce Lee.
0: <laughs> but the, uh, the interesting thing is he, he does make that comment. If I only had my hands and Fred eventually becomes his hands. He's the one who acts for him. Yeah. And that kind of so, to, I, I checked, uh, checked on that it too. We're
3: also, we're also a few years away from Wilhelm first screaming. So, uh, that's probably mm. why we.
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. It's there was no Wilhelm to scream. Well, Wilhelm was around, but he hadn't screamed yet, so
3: <laughs> yeah, he was know. still living his life. <laughs> He's still alive.
1: <laughs> I'm I'm sort of picturing. Well, we'll get to it. We'll get to it. We gotta before before we can talk about candy glass. We get the candy glass has got to break. But yeah, I love that uh, Fred leaps over the counter. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's you, you hear the phrase band of brothers, and, and this is it totally being enacted. It's, you know, that's a, that's a fellow veteran, and, you know, he's going in, you know, head first. He's diving in. No questions.
3: All right, you know, educate me a little bit, guys, because I, I, I did not think that in the 40s, we were getting a lot of movies that were this honest about the after effects of World War II, uh, you know, I I felt I felt like we always got kind of the more Frank Frank Capra style, uh oh war's great, it's so good we got involved, and now everything's fine because we killed all the Nazis and the bad Japanese. Like like this is this is not that.
0: <laughs> yeah, this no. is one of the first ones to come out after the war that starts to show this this trend. Brett, yeah. do you know if there were any others around this time that that were of a similar vein? Yeah, there
1: yeah, I mean uh Pete Mummer alluded to this uh, during the Indiana Jones minute when they did their minutes, but the, you know, there were a lot of, this is where film noir starts. And a lot of the themes of the film noir of the 1946, 47, 48 era is the returning veteran and how he's a little lost. and He doesn't know what to do. If you guys have ever seen, um, wait a minute, I forgot the title. Key Largo Uh with, uh, with Bogart.
2: Oh yeah. Edward
1: G. Robinson, you know, that, I mean, there's some interesting parallels there because Bogart's a veteran, you know, he's there to tell, uh, to talk to Lauren Bacall, the widow of his best friend. He's, you know, he's sort of, you know, Edward G. Robinson is, you know, a, a symbolic menace and, you know, Bogart sort of doesn't want to get involved. He's like, I've, I've, I've fought, this is what happened. I'm, I'm done with this. And he, he has to kind of be goaded a little bit. Into uh, into fighting the evil that is Rudy Robinson So,
0: did we talk about Key Largo back in the uh, uh, the Big Trouble in Little China days, Brett? I um, recall like our first episode. We may have mentioned that.
1: No, we talked about uh, we talked about Rio Bravo, Reno oh, Rio Bravo, okay. which is <laughs> they next. They to sound Key similar. <laughs> Key Largo, Rio Bravo was Rio Bravo a John Wayne movie. Rio Bravo was John Wayne and and Howard Hawks. And, so there is
2: yeah. a John Wayne movie along the lines of this. It was made in the 1960s. But you know, like Sid was saying, a lot of World War II movies, even you know, going back to Saving Private Ryan, although Saving Private Ryan does show you sort of the gritty and nasty um realities of war, there was a John Wayne movie called In Harm's Way. If you haven't seen it, oh, yeah. it's definitely worth worth watching. And it's not the sort of, war is great, um, we're all the good guys, everything's going to be fine. Um, it, I don't want to give too much away, but it's not the hero triumphs and saves the day story all the way. There's a lot of death, a lot of loss, mm-hmm. and it's very different from sort of the the typical John Wayne uh, World War II films at the time. Hmm. But I mean, this is the first movie I can think of where, e- even though they didn't have a name for it back then, post-traumatic stress syndrome was actually depicted in film. I mean, um we they don't really go into it exactly what he's seen. And I, I really kind of like the way that they um show and, and not tell um yeah all the things that Al's seen he comes back to this wonderful life of luxury is much more well situated uh than the other two main characters but he can't stop drinking and it's right. you know heavily implied of course that that's because of all the things he had to see all the things he had to do mm. and this is the first movie that i can think of that depicted this sort of thing and you know, for something made in the 1940s just after the war, that's pretty groundbreaking, you know?
1: Yeah, it is. It is. I think uh, if you take this script to, uh, you know, another studio, another director, you know, yeah, I think you get rewrites. I think you get a, you know, a much more, you know, hunky-dory, you know, the, the problems aren't as complex. The, the anguish isn't there. This is, it's, it's a very real movie. Except for maybe the punch. <laughs> yeah.
0: yeah. Oh, wait, wait. I want to talk about uh, that shot just a little bit before we talk about oh, uh, sure. the candy glass. So there is a, a site out there called TV Tropes. And uh, this is one where they, they kind of categorize all the different uh, you know, the actions that happen constantly in films and TV. Uh, this one in particular could probably be called Dramatic Shattering and Punched, across, a, punched across the Room.
1: Punched uh, across the room. Yes. Yes.
0: So yes. oh, perfect. And uh, I, I looked up a, another site. There's a, a glass seller in the UK. I think they're called Cantafix. And uh, they, they talk about a couple of scenes in movies where we get a lot of glass shattering. Uh, there were two that they referenced. One was Blade Runner from 1982, uh, the part where Decker shoots the replicant and then uh, she falls through the glass.
1: Oh, that is mm. a good one.
0: And then the uh, the scene in Ghost in the nineteen eighties with Patrick Swayze, where the bad guy falls through the glass. But I, there must be dozens of others. Uh, oh God, yeah.
1: I mean, we yeah we're talking about uh, really two classic <laughs> overused tropes. You know, they're mm-hmm. they're done to death, but we love them. And that's yeah the uh, the totally overexaggerated wind up haymaker punch. <laughs> and yeah the guy and you know it sends you sailing you know it's total popeye style and then yeah crashing into glass and just just kind of being dazed and you know not not a not a drop of blood not a shred mm-hmm. and it's 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 right up there with being hit over the head by a bottle hitting mm-hmm. the ground and then like two minutes later you get up and you're rubbing your neck oh boy what hit me uh, <laughs> We've—I'm sure we've all had serious blows to the noggins, and I've—I've uh, I've never gone unconscious. Uh, I don't—I don't think I would be coming back after, say, two or three minutes.
0: Well, even Big Trouble in Little China has that too—the where Jack gets hit on the head.
1: Oh yeah, yeah, and it's, yeah, you just—it's—it's it's just a concussion. You shake it off.
2: Oh, you know? absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know how you shake it off. The aromatic smelling salts. That's how <laughs> you get the druggist. Yeah,
1: yeah, you get the you get the are those, those large cans that are in the foreground uh, by the cash register. I thought those were coffee cans. Is that what you're referring to?
2: I'll be smelling well, salts. Yeah, you, you hear it at the end of the the end of our oh, minute.
1: Get yeah, the aromatic
2: I it's smelling salts. <laughs> I, I, smelling salts or smelling bitters? I don't know. Or spirits
3: yeah. or something. Yeah. That's
2: spirits, yeah. The sure. either way, it's like something that could either revive someone after they've been punched across the room <laughs> through glass, or yeah. you know, if you're looking for something to really kind of kick up your Manhattans to the next level, put a couple of <laughs> drops of that in there with the rye and the vermouth, and you'll have a hell of a cocktail.
0: Delicious. Well, you De- know, there's a nice ironic shot that happens right after he goes through the glass. You know, we see the boss upstairs, and there's a big sign. It says, "Prescriptions accurately compounded." So I argue that Mollet himself got a prescription all right. He got a healthy dose of perspective delivered by 16 ounces of fist to face.
3: He was accurately compounded. Yeah,
1: he was compounded all right. (laughs) So I studied the heck out of this punch. And yeah, we could we could talk for a moment about, you know, Hollywood style of fighting and that, you know, classic you know, wind it up. It's more like a baseball bat swing than a punch, but it's all the way back and it's sort of a right cross kaboom. Uh, one thing I noticed here is, is one, Dane Andrews actually uh, holds back a little bit. So he doesn't, you know, he doesn't follow through because I think he was afraid of maybe actually hitting the actor. Mm. Um, and then if if you watch it enough times, you notice they do speed it up. Maybe twelve frames or something like that. So it a, it's a big windup, and then just before he connects, it looks like the the film actually is sped up a little bit just to just to get the impact there. But
3: mm. uh, I appreciate that kind of thing as 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 someone with a with an eye for this. I, I can tell you, uh, as a professional wrestling fan, mm. I have seen matches where you know they clearly. They they wind the punch back and then they follow through and then they glance or they, you know, they deliberately kind of pull it a little bit just to to make sure it doesn't hurt the guy. And then I seen a match that uh, Mick Foley specifically asked the person he was wrestling to actually punch him in the face uh, for wow. realism. And it's way less dramatic. Like you yeah. could see he was really getting hurt, but the, the wind up wasn't that far and the punch was really compact and it stopped at his face and it was real. Um
0: I remember when watching wrestling, anytime they would do a punch, they would always stomp on the floor or on the mat as they did it for added effect.
3: Oh, heck, yeah. As a matter of fact, if you really want to be a connoisseur of this, watch them when they kick somebody. Watch their right hand. They'll slap their own butt when they do the kick, uh, and the sound of the slap on their tights makes a loud snap, hmm. and it, you think that the kick is snapping the guy's face, and it's just, it's just his butt getting slapped.
2: Well, that um, is one of the things with, uh, with modern M&A you know, especially when like ultimate fighting first started coming around. Part of the problem was it was hard to sell on TV, not because of the violence, because when someone's actually just getting, you know, hit in the face multiple times for real, it doesn't look that dramatic. What looks dramatic is when, you know, you see sort of a flurry of of blows to someone's head and you can't really tell what's going on. And then they call the fight, and then you see that like blood's oozing out of this guy's face because he's just gotten wailed on. But it, you know, no one's flying through glass. Yeah. Is the point I'm trying to make? You know? Yeah, that's
1: a good point, James. Because, uh, you know, I think we can apply what you guys are saying about wrestling to like go back to silent films. If you ever see a fight scene in a silent film, it mm. it tends oh, to man. be more of yeah, like uh, just two guys. It's it's like kind of wild side punches and a lot of grappling and wrestling and, and pushing around. It's, it's, it's probably far more realistic. It's like, okay, yeah, that's a street fight, but on camera. Yeah. It looks like two guys playing around.
3: what so we haven't, it's probably been done on wheels and wheels yet. James, we haven't had a silent movie.
1: Oh, a great train God. robbery. Yeah. Something,
2: something with Buster Keaton and cars for sure.
3: Yeah. We need some cars. Uh,
2: yeah. Be fun. <laughs> so, Even though it's not in our minute, can we spend a minute talking about some of the cars in this film? Yes, yes, please. Absolutely. All right. So historically, and Sid, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, essentially, once we got into World War II, new car production stopped. And all the factories uh, in Detroit and Ohio and around the country we're making tanks and bombers, and you know that was one of the main reasons why we won. In addition to the you know thousands of Russians uh, uh, pouring in from Siberia um, to kill Nazis, who by that time had frozen to death because Hitler said, "Ah, you'll be there by the summertime. Don't worry about packing your winter gear." Um, aside from that, the other reason we won was because. In America, we could just make a whole bunch of stuff and ship it over. The, uh, One of the sort of jokes about why we won World War II was after a, a major battle, a captured German tank commander said to the American tank commander, You know, uh, we killed 10 of your tanks for every one of ours that you destroyed. And the American tank commander says, Well, okay, then, why did we win? And the German tank commander says, Simple you had 11 and uh, (laughs) you know, that's because we weren't making cars anymore. So when you see this montage of the guys getting back uh, to town, Oh, and we've got to talk about this town too, because what the hell is going on here? Um, (laughs) You see people getting back to their cars. You see a Ford model a, a, that you know it's a pre-war car that they're souping up to make into a hot rod because hey we can do that now but again the only thing you can do that with at that point is a car from the 1920s because they weren't making any uh by the time the 1940s came around um and so you see a lot of interesting pre-war cars because the post-war cars haven't really hit the streets yet
3: yeah, yeah, actually uh World War 2 kind of gave birth to the hot rod movement um because people had taken like the Model Ts and the Model A's and they just discarded them. You know, it wasn't like you could go trade that kind of thing in. Cars changed. Like you couldn't if you if you couldn't you guys unless you've actually driven a Model T before, you couldn't just step into the seat of a Model T and start driving it. So, um So the fact that these cars were just kind of discarded and these teenagers were coming up and these kids and and then also people were getting trained as mechanics in the war and coming back. uh, They had stuff to tinker with and they knew they could just take these things, strip them down and build something out of them. Everybody else had to make do with the with the mid 30s, early 40s cars that were just available to them at that point. So, yeah, I mean, it was like I mean, we're kind of seeing a little bit of it today where the used car market went a little berserk because, uh we couldn't keep production up because of coronavirus. So, um, so the, you know, all the cars that, that were being made were, were being snapped up. I mean, it, it's, it's one thing that I don't know if the movie did it intentionally, but they beautifully get the years of the cars. You don't see anything, you know, post-war at all. Um, and,
0: he said, uh, and do you, yeah. do you happen to know, uh, you'd probably be the one to know this. Where does the term hot rod come from anyway?
3: Oh, wow. That's a uh, good question. One of those things you just never think about.
0: <laughs> yeah.
3: I'll <laughs> we'll have,
2: have to look that one
3: up. <laughs> yeah, I am.
2: Uh... Yeah, the the newest car I'm looking on the internet movie car database is the 41 Plymouth Super Deluxe that I believe is owned by Al's family. And so even though this car would have been uh, you know, five years old in 1946, and the other thing to keep in mind is... In the 1940s, 1950s, if you kept a car more than five years, that was a labor of love. I mean, things were made more simply back then, but you know these things were pretty much made by hand compared to the automated manufacturing of today. so if you wanted to keep one running, you needed to know what you were doing or pay someone handsomely who knew what they were doing. and uh, this Plymouth. Special Deluxe, um, you know, they definitely, Al's family probably committed to keeping that sucker going um, while he was away. And it's also interesting, though, that a five-year-old car was a sign of wealth uh, in 1947. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm going
3: yeah, to say, James, that that car was like what everybody wanted at that point. And, you know, that, that was the equivalent of having a new car. Uh. Um, you know, interesting enough by the way, hot rod doesn't have a clear origin. Um the uh, there's there's a couple of theories on it. One is that the hot part is just a word for making a car faster, like hotting it up. The other is that it, that some of these cars were or parts were stolen, so uh they were hot mm-hmm. because they were stolen. And then the rod part is either a rod means it's a roadster, you know, like a convertible, uh like a small convertible, or the rod actually refers to the camshaft and the connecting rods. Um, -hmm. and that also really interestingly though, is that earlier before hot rod was a thing, a car that was modified for performance was called a gal job, G-O-W job, J-O-B. And it could be that the the term just was a misheard version of gal job. It just became hot rod. People were, yeah, no clear one on that though.
0: Interesting though.
1: It it was just a catchy phrase. I, I, I kind of, I'm kind of with you on that. It's, it sounds a lot cooler than jalopy. Yeah. <laughs> Although I just have a certain endearment for the word jalopy, but uh, would you rather drive a jalopy or
3: a hot rod? Hmm. hmm. All better than a specific. lemon. Yeah, specific jalopy. I, I, it just
2: I would rather drive either a Dodge Business Coupe or a Studebaker President. Ah. Because what's more stately than those two car names, a business coupe. What are you doing? Uh, business Studebaker, in my business
0: coupe. The last time I remember uh, a movie with the Studebaker was the Muppet movie.
3: Uh, yeah. Well, Studebaker had a much longer and more beautiful history before the Muppet movie. Uh, <laughs> those cars were really kind of at its downfall when it was slowly losing its autonomy. Um, now, James, I would be passing you because I would be driving something called Airstream. All right. Like, nothing says we made this car aerodynamic than DeSoto calling it the Airstream.
2: <laughs> and in the 1930s, from? it looks pretty aerodynamic.
3: And that was the thing, by the way. The 30s was when they were making that transition away from cars that looked like horse and buggies that had engines in the front to cars that were like more shaped like the wind. Uh, and it really, it really kind of built and culminated with the blimps. Because uh, later DeSoto makes a car called the Airflow, it looks like a blimp, and 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 that's right around the time the Beetle comes out, and, you know, and and gets gets big. I mean, obviously Hitler commissioned the Beetle, but everything had to be a blimp, everything had to be airstream, it had to be aerodynamic. Teardrops. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, so also, uh, also worth just adding, you know, the war's over uh, when Detroit finally does get rolling with cars again they're just the first i think two years of auto production are just the old models from you know yep. 1941 and 1942 just sort of like this is what we got and there's this it's it's weird to think about this but there's this lull where yeah we don't have any new cars i don't think it's what it's, is it 48 when you see a, a like an actual new design or 49 it, it takes a while
3: yeah it's kind of like chrysler today Mm. Mm.
2: Yeah, I, I think after, you know, there's a lot of talk about car makers going all electric. I think GM said it'll be like at least carbon neutral uh, by what, 2035 maybe. Meanwhile, Chrysler is still going to be making the Charger Challenger in 300. And they will have only like mildly listed faith that, uh, mm. We can edit this part as well. Face Facelifted those three cars. Actually, I don't even think they're going to facelift the Challenger. That car is going oh. to look the same, and they're just going to start adding more horsepower and more tire to it as time goes on. But otherwise, it's going to be unchanged 15 years from now.
0: Hmm. Sid and James, thank you guys so much for coming on and, and bringing your perspective to this film. Tell, uh, let the audience know where they can find you and what you're working on absolutely uh
3: please uh take a time and check out reels and wheels podcast james and i uh try to have a fun guest on uh, as frequently as we can record but we talk about movies uh and the cars that make them special our most recent episode just came up it's part two of our discussion of the wages of fear so please check that out um we're not doing a lot of comedy these days because there's still not much stage time to be had so uh other than that we're just living our lives
0: you guys should do some sort of like a zoom comedy thing
3: oh that's they suck
0: (laughs) (laughs) yeah (laughs) well you can find the best minute podcast on apple podcasts spotify and google play or at the main site thebestminutes.com social media is available at butch's place the best years of our lives listeners cafe on facebook and on twitter at the best minutes just the best minutes that's it uh sid and james thanks again brett always a pleasure Ditto,
1: ditto, thanks again. Uh, and we'll see you tomorrow, eh?
0: Yes, on the best minute. Hey
3: Joe,
0: you better hurry up out there because she's taking off soon.
3: Right, thanks. Come on, Taylor.